Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. Continuing our verse-by-verse study in the book of Revelation, today we hear part two of the glorified Son of Man and learn more about the attributes and authority of the risen Christ. You can download the handouts for this and all of our messages at truthmatterschurch.org slash resources. And now, leading our study, Pastor Alex Cantaroja. All right, let's uh, continue our study in the book of Revelation. And we are in Revelation 1, verse 16. And the title of our message is the same title as our last message. It is the glorified Son of Man. But this would be part two of this message. Because when we get to this point in the vision, John is describing the glorified Son of Man. And what we've been finding is in the vision itself, uh, as highly figurative it is, what we're starting to grasp and learn is the descriptions of this glorified Son of Man also is communicating a message. It's communicating God's will and plan on what God, through His Lord Jesus Christ, is going to do. So we're going to continue in looking at this vision and glean on what the Scripture tells us or informs us that is behind this vision so that we can hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're going to continue to do our exercise where we're going to look at the vision. It's going to sound foreign to many of us. Then we're going to go to the Scripture to see, okay, what can we learn from that description? And what was the truth that was being communicated? What was associated with that vision? And then we can apply it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've done that in our last study. We're going to continue to do that for part two of our study today. So without further ado, let's begin with our scripture reading. We will once again pick it up in Revelation 1 verse 9, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pick it up in verse 16. And I'll be reading from the NAS. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that concludes our reading of our text today, but we will pick it up in verse 16. And we will begin expositing this verse. Our goal for our study today is to get through at least to verse 18 and the first half of verse 18. So let's look at verse 16, shall we? In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So John, when he sees this vision, so let's kind of just recap. When John was, on the, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he heard a voice behind him. 
like the sound of a trumpet. When John turns around, first he sees seven golden lampstands. And then in the middle of the lampstands, he sees the Son of Man, who is the glorified Jesus Christ. And when he started to look at the glorified Son of Man, he started from the head. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. Then he went to his feet, and he saw that his feet were like burnished bronze. And he saw that he was clothed in a robe that reached to the feet, and he had a golden sash across his chest. And as he's looking at him, and we've talked about what that was associated with in our last study, but as he's looking at him, now he takes a look and he's seeing what's in his right hand. And then he's also now looking at his mouth. When he started to look at his right hand, and I want to pull in from one of our last studies, we did a whole study dedicated to what the right hand is associated with in Scripture. We looked through the entire Bible. And here it is. Here's a summary of what, what does right hand mean in Scripture? And then the context is going to tell us which one applies here. But here's what right hand is associated. Right hand is associated with blessing or the blessed one. Right hand is associated with majestic power, able to shatter one's enemies. Right hand is associated with pleasure or being pleased, favor, saving, savior, righteousness, long life, and exalted. That's what right hand is associated with throughout Scripture. But in context here, right hand is associated with the glorified Son of Man who is the blessed one of the Father, majestic and splendid power and authority. And in his right hand, it says he held seven stars. And we're going to look at that. And then it says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. We'll look at that. And then it also says his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Let's look at what it means when it says he held seven stars. At this part of the vision, John sees this glorified Son of Man holding seven stars. And that sound like a broken record. Seven means seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. John in his vision saw seven stars in Jesus's right hand. And stars, it's astir. And it means stars, you know, just as when we look in our sky and we see the stars. But if you want a technical definition, it's a luminous heavenly body. So it's something in heaven, in the heavens, that emits light. That's an astir. And this astir is what the wise men saw that led them to the birth of Christ. When they saw the star, they saw the astir. And they followed that star, ultimately leading them to the birth of Jesus. So seven stars, as far as what that means, Jesus gave John the interpretation in verse 20. We'll read it there. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So if you're taking notes, I know this is, sounds fancy. He held seven stars. Jesus, the seven stars in Jesus' right hand in this vision equals or is representative of seven angels. And angels is the Greek agalos, and agalos means messenger or an angel. Now the context will tell you, is it referring to a human messenger or an angelic messenger? Just a a little more comment on that. When you look at the the New Testament and you look at agalos throughout the New Testament, most of the time it is referring to angels. Most. Most. There are some cases when agalos is used to describe or to speak of human messengers. So, for example, you know, John the Baptist and his disciples were called human messengers or agalos. Jesus' disciples were called agalos or human messengers. And then when in the epistle of James, when he makes mention of the spies that Rahab received, 
James called the spies agalos. And the reason why I'm bringing this out, when you read commentaries, there, there, is some, there are some interpretive challenges here. When Jesus, okay, we know that the seven stars equals the seven angels or the seven agalos. Is it referring to human messengers? Or is it referring to just as, you know, many of our English translation transliterated it, angels? So there's kind of a, there's some interpretive challenges here. But I'm going to argue and present before us, it is clearly speaking of the angels, angelic beings, not human messengers. We're going to see this as we continue studying the book of Revelation. The angels are very busy, have a lot of activity, and that's no different when it comes to these seven stars or these seven angels over these seven churches. So there are one, two, three, four, five, six. There are seven angels over the seven churches. You can see there is one angel assigned to these seven churches. Okay? Here's a little side note, and don't peek, of course. Did you know that Israel has their own angel over them? Does anyone want to take a guess on who that angel is? So these seven churches have seven angels, one over them. The people of Israel have their very own, I don't want to call them guardian angel, but have their very own angel who's tasked to look over them. Does anyone want to take a guess? Gabriel? Okay, there's two angels named by name, Michael and Gabriel. Michael, the archangel, is the angel over Israel. And here is the passage that supports that, and this is Daniel 12. So this is towards the end of Daniel's vision. And this was a passage concerning the end times, and I'll pick it up in verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people. And here it's your is Daniel's, people is Israel. So now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands over the sons of Daniel's people, Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, Israel, everyone who is found written in the book of life, will be rescued. And the time of distress here, remember in one, uh, one of our more recent studies, in the tribulation, one of the tribulations that's unique for, you know, there's, there's different tribulations for different groups. Well, this time of distress here is speaking of Jerusalem's tribulation. So there's going to come a time that Jerusalem and the people of Israel are going to experience something that has pretty much surpassed even, you can even say the, the destruction of 70 AD when they were taken away and ravaged. There will be another time of distress towards the end times that has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And it is at around that time where Michael, the archangel, is going to arise and then ultimately going to rescue them. Or more specifically, the 144,000. Okay? As we progress in our study, as I mentioned, we're going to see the angels. They are not only very busy, but they have very specific tasks. There are countless angels out there, but there are angels that have specific tasks, even for specific days or even hours, that they're just there waiting to do their bidding. So when John sees the seven stars in Jesus' right hand, it's, it's signifying that Jesus' right hand of power and authority, and it signifies that he, he, he even has authority over the angels assigned to the seven churches, which in this vision are the seven golden lampstands. So here's a, the literal interpretation of this vision. The seven letters were addressed to both the seven churches and the seven angels over them. Let me say that again. So John is seeing the glorified Son of Man in this vision. And he also sees that he has seven stars in his right hand. If you were asked the question, okay, 
Who are the seven letters to the seven churches addressed to? It's twofold. It is written to the angel over that church, and it is also written to the church. I know it gets a little confusing, but when we read the letters to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right, it's writing to the angel of the church of Ephesus, but yet the message is going to the angel who's going to carry it out to the church, depending on what the warning was or what the blessing was. The angels are just doing what they're tasked to do. And just to kind of, as a, as a kind of an example on that point, when you study the scriptures, in particular, let's say you study the book of Daniel, a, Gabriel was active in Daniel's life, visited him multiple times, and brought him the vision and the interpretation of the vision. So the angels are busy, in this case with Daniel, in communicating God's will or vision and interpreting it. It's no different in the book of Revelation. The angels are given tasks and are given even in some cases to deliver the message. And although we weren't there, just through the scriptures, the angels were involved in delivering this message as well. Through, you know, and this came through the letter from, written by John, but the angels were involved in that whole process. So that's what it means when he says he held seven. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now let's look at what it means when he says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, without looking again, what's the common interpretation of this? Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Or what passage comes to mind? Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Two-edged sword. James? The tongue? You're speaking about the tongue that it's, it can cause a fire? Okay. Like kind of like a double talk or salt water, fresh water. Another passage that comes to mind, you ever heard the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword? Well, if you read a lot of commentaries or comments, that's what comes to mind. But let's look at that passage, shall we? Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if you were to just read Revelation, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and you were just being casual reading it, many you know, might think, and it's just communicating, oh, Jesus is the word of God who became flesh. Look at the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. And here it's, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So if you were to kind of read this loosely, it seems to like just kind of suggest that Oh, it's trying to just communicate that the Word of God is speaking here. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. A lot of commentaries will go kind of on that lane. But there is one distinction from this passage that I want to call to our attention. It says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Meaning this, The Word of God is not a two-edged sword. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It does pierce even the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, thoughts and intentions. So all that is to say, Revelation 1.16, when it says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, it's not intended to simply communicate that Jesus, the word of God, is speaking, although he is the word of God, and although he is speaking. But that's not what this vision is limited to to communicating just that. Would it surprise you that to understand what this means, we have to go back to the Old Testament? So, okay, John in his vision sees that out of Jesus' mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Okay, what, what does that mean? First, I want to make kind of an association here, and this will kind of come together, but so try to stay with me. Are we familiar with the Proverbs concerning the adulterous woman? Uh, let me pick it up, uh, Proverbs 5, and we'll read the first five verses. My son, give, wis- uh, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion, and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. 
Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Now, if we're doing some casual reading, yeah, of course, if there's an adulterous woman, it may seem kind of alluring. It may seem, you know, that it might be like dripping like honey, and, it's, and her speech is smoother than oil. But the Scripture warns us that she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, and her feet go down to death, and her steps take a hold of Shoal. So when we're kind of reading this loosely, it seems like, oh, it's just some wisdom not to engage with an adulterous woman. And that's wise, obviously. But here's what's interesting. In the letter to Thyatira, Jesus' bondservants were led astray to commit adultery with Jezebel, the supposed prophetess. And they were warned in that letter to repent or else they will be thrown into great tribulation. So in this Proverbs passage, the sharp two-edged sword, here's where I'm trying to make the connection. There is an association with the adulterous woman, death, and the grave. And you might not have maybe pondered this, but this warning against the adulterous woman in Proverbs 5 has some end times prophecy implications. And I'm going to show you. But let me continue to kind of build a case here. Because I'm trying to tell you, what does it mean when Jesus says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword? We're trying to understand through Scripture and through the associations of the shared words on what is being communicated. But there is a particular psalm that's even more instructive for our Revelation 1 passage. And I want to read Psalm 149, verses 6 through 9. And in this psalm, the two-edged sword is associated with vengeance and judgment against the nation. So let's pick it up in Psalm 149, verses 6 through 9. Let the high praises of God be in their their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the judgment written. This is an honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Now in Psalm 149, the saints were the ones holding the two-edged sword and they were ready to execute vengeance and judgment against the nations. What I'm going to argue here is there is an association of two-edged sword with executing vengeance and judgment against the nations. So in our Revelation 1 passage, it is not the saints or the people that's being spoken of here. It is the risen Son of Man who is ready to execute vengeance and judgment against the seven churches and against the nations. So here's, here's the interpretation. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. When John says this, it's a solemn warning to the seven churches and his people against committing adultery against God and that this risen and glorified Son of Man is ready to come and execute vengeance and judgment on them and the nations. Jesus is ready to pretty much shatter his enemies and execute judgment out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. So it's not just saying Jesus, the Word of God, is speaking. No, he's speaking and he has something to say. And what he's saying, it's a warning. It's a warning against committing adultery against God and not repenting of it. So let's look at now the last part of verse 16 and now Jesus' face. There's going to be a connection here from the adulterous woman. It's going to be connected here with his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Are you familiar with the Moses account? When Moses went up to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and when he came down with the tablets of stone, let's say in this case the the second set, so he had two sets of stones that were inscribed, the Ten Commandments. The first time he went up, he found the people of Israel engaged in revelry and in sin. And he threw the commandments at their feet, shattered. He then pretty much gave them an ultimatum, who's for God and who isn't. And then ultimately there was a great slaying that day. Well, the second time he went up, 
he was commanded to bring a new fresh set of stones so that God can rewrite it. And he went up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. When he came down, his face was shining. And the people of Israel couldn't even look at him. And he had to cover his face with the veil. And Paul makes allusions to this, that even that was fading. And that the reading of the scriptures is like having a veil on and it needs to be taken off so we can see the full glory of Christ in all of scripture. And it comes to really accepting and believing that Jesus is the Messiah. But anyways, I want to, there's, there's this connection or association when it says Jesus' face was like the sun shining in its strength. I want to use the example of Moses to help us understand what this means. Uh, let's, so let's pick it up. I kind of gave you the context. Uh, we'll pick it up in Exodus 34, pick it up in verse 11. And this was Moses was on Mount Sinai to receive the second set of tablets of stone. So we'll pick it up in verse 11. The Lord says there, Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the, Hittite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods." and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice, and you might make, take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons to play the harlot with their gods. So in this account, when the Lord was giving Moses instructions on what they are commanded to do, this also, in this warning, it echoes the Proverbs 5 adulterous woman who was likened to a sharp two-edged sword. So when Moses was on Mount Sinai, the Lord is warning them, hey, I'm going to drive the people out and make sure you smash their places of worship, their ashram, anything like that, and do not give your sons to marry with them. Otherwise, you may find yourselves committing adultery or playing the harlot to their God. There's this kind of parallel to this adulterous woman. But now I want to get more specifically to Moses' face shining. This is the same account, but we're going to go, we're going to pick it up in verse 29. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of stone of testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him in Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out, he spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded. The sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. Here's, here's why I went through all that. When John in his vision sees Jesus' face was like the sun shining in its strength. When you look at the account of Moses, Moses spent time with God in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He spent so much time with him that the glory of God even emanated on his face. Here's the connection here. When in Revelation 1.16, when it says Jesus' face was like the sun shining in its strength, it is also signifying that he spent much time in his Father's presence. It's another way to say there was Father and Son time. Remember, Jesus said to his Father, restore to me right the glory that we've had from the beginning. The glory begins with the Father. And he's like, share it back with me. 
Well, you can say that the glory of his Father was shining in Jesus' face. You can even say in full strength. So now, there is another illusion here. The transfiguration. There's, a, there's also another kind of connection by association. Not only does his face was like the sun shining in its strength, meaning he was in his Father's presence, but it also has allusions to the transfiguration account, and I want to read that for us in Matthew 17. We'll read the first five verses. So six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother. John, his brother, is the one here who is the beloved apostle who wrote Revelation, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. You can even say, shining in its strength. And his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased Listen to him. Here in the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were allowed to see this vision. Here is the interpretation now. So if we take the account of Moses and the glory that's shown on his face, and if we were to also take the account of the transfiguration, here's what's being communicated. When John describes Jesus' face, was like the sun shining in its strength. It is communicating in human words that Jesus talked and spent time in His Father's presence. You can even say received further instructions. And in turn, in this vision, is issuing the warning to the churches and the nations against committing adultery against their God with foreign gods. Did you catch that? Jesus' will has always been to do the will of him who sent him. That's what drives the Lord Jesus Christ. He does whatever the Father wants him to do. So when his face shone like the sun shining in its strength, we, we learn through the Moses account that he spent time with him. You can also say when Jesus spent time with his Father, in that father and son time, the Father is also communicating to the Lord Jesus Christ on what he wants done. And the Lord is now carrying it out. So ultimately, this warning to the seven churches and the warning throughout all the Scripture are the words that began with the Father and are now coming from the Son. That's why he only does and says what the Father does and says. Furthermore, what this also communicates is that the Father is pleased with His Son and has given the Son to share the Father's glory. And John, through the Holy Spirit, is telling us that God the Father Himself is commanding that we listen to the One whose face was like the sun shining in its strength, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from the Father. So His face was like the sun shining in its strength was, is, is another example. It's not just fancy apocalyptic writing. It is rich, and it's rich in truths and treasures, even in the relationship between the Father and the Son. And the, now the warning that is also um, coming out of that. So here is a summary of verses 12 through 16. When John turned to see the voice that was speaking with him, he first saw seven golden lampstands. Then John saw the risen Son of Man standing in the middle of the lampstands, and as he begins to see this glorified Son of Man and his attire, and as he can even say his posture, he is describing that which is consistent of God's high priest and judge. So let me say it another way. When John sees the glorified Son of Man, he is seeing God the Father's high priest and God the Father's appointed judge. And 
Jesus also held in his right hand seven stars, which represents Jesus' power and authority over the seven angels. And as I mentioned, the seven letters, as we will see, are addressed to the seven angels who are over those seven churches, and thus the message is also for them. And then Jesus commands John on what to say and write to the seven angels over the seven churches. Um, so there's kind of a, a theme here. When it comes to Jesus' bondservants, and let's, let's say in this case the apostles, they only do and say what the Lord Jesus Christ tells them to do and say. And that's no different in the angelic realm. The angels are only doing what they are commanded to do and not to do. And who's calling the shots? Well, in Jesus and his time with the Father is getting instruction. And then Jesus is carrying it out in his Father's anoma and authority that was given to him. So here's a, here's a spiritual truth, and I can't help but come across this every time we come into this book. And I mentioned this before. Whatever happens in the physical is a manifestation of what happened or what happened in the spiritual. So what happens in the spiritual first, and then it plays itself out in the physical. For example, when a king or a kingdom rises, an angel rose with authority. And then a manifestation of that becomes a king or a kingdom. And when a kingdom falls, that means there was a shift in the angelic realm. And it manifested itself with the nation falling. When a nation rises up against nation and a kingdom against kingdom, it happens first in the angelic realm. And we see this when you study the book of Daniel. And even when Gabriel came to deliver the message, he was, what, detoured for, what was it, three weeks? And he needed to get Michael to help him. There was nation rising up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and it manifested itself in the physical. So in the case, let's say, uh, from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire, there was a rising and a falling. And it happens in the angelic realm. And the same is true of this. When a church rises and it falls, it happened in the angelic realm or because of the influence and the instructions by angels. I know it's hard. When Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, and the principalities in the heavenly places. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what's going on also in the book of Revelation. What's happening, especially when it comes at the hands of evil men, there is definitely some angels that are influencing that evil and even enabling it. But that, that's the truth. It's a spiritual truth or reality, and all we can do is react to some extent to whatever that is. So with that, let me read the Kataroha Amplified Translation of <laughs> Revelation 1, 12 through 16. So let me know if this helps. Let me open up this passage for us. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, which represents the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And in the middle of the seven lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, the glorified Jesus, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash, consistent with that of God's high priest and judge, and his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. He was spotless, he was sinless, he was pure, he was righteous. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and he was ready to render a verdict in judgment. And his feet were like burnished bronze. The, this glorified Son of Man was a perpetual memorial offering before the throne of his Father when it has been made to glow in a furnace. He is ready to refine the seven churches and his people through trials, imprisonment, and infliction. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. The glory of the God of Israel is ready to come pay a visit and bring destruction. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, which represents the seven angels over the seven churches over whom Jesus has power and authority. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. He's ready to execute judgment and vengeance on the nations. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength as the blessed one of God most high, the only begotten of the Father. Like, where did I get all that from the scriptures? But that's 
what's being communicated in this vision. How did John react? Verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. When you, when you read the Scriptures and you read the Bible, it's not uncommon when someone from heaven pays a visit and you're terrified. Uh, Daniel was that way when Gabriel and, other, and an, another angelic being visited him in Daniel 8 and Daniel 10. In fact, um, when you read the account of Jesus walking on water, I mean, Jesus wasn't even glorified yet, but yet the disciples, when they saw him walking on water, they were terrified, and they were also terrified during the transfiguration. And this is precisely what happened when John saw Jesus in this great vision. John was terrified, and it says... Jesus placed his right hand on him and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I don't know about you, but didn't he have seven stars in his right hand? (laughs) And now he put his right hand on him? You know, I I just noticed those things. But remember, right hand is also um, associated with all those things that I mentioned earlier. Uh, In this case, he was reaching out his right hand, and it was more to comfort John and reassure him, hey, don't be afraid. Now let's look at the other part of this verse. I am the first and the last. I want to ask you guys again this question. What does that mean? I am the first and the last. Is it just another way to say I'm the Alpha and the Omega? I'm the first and the last? And that's it? Do you agree? If I were to say, oh, when, when Jesus is speaking here and he says I am the first and the last, he just said I'm the Alpha and the Omega. He's just saying the same thing just in a different way. See, because you know now, <laughs> there's more than meets the eye. But, you know, not surprisingly, you know, read some commentaries out there. It's just another, yeah, it's Alpha and Omega. I'm the first and the last. That's it. So would, I surprise, would it surprise us that, oh, this phrase is also rooted in the Old Testament? Remember I mentioned this last time. If anyone is teaching the book of Revelation and is not teaching from the Old Testament, you are nearsighted. You're not full, you're not seeing it clearly. It's impossible it is impossible to even try to understand the book of Revelation apart from the Old Testament. You need the Old Testament. It's the foundation. So when, when Jesus says something like, I am the first and the last, you can't just get that in the New Testament. You need to look at what does this phrase mean in also the Old Testament. And it's a very specific designation. And I'm going to show you Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 7. Thus says the Lord... The King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Verbatim. Word for word. In Isaiah 44, verse 6. I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me who is like me. Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Remember in our past studies when we looked at the titles of God, so let's say the Lord God or the Kyrios Theos. And what we learned was that God the Father is at the top of all authority. All authority. The Father is at the top. And the title and authority that he has, he, you can say, delegated it to his Son so that all may honor the Son. That's why the Father and the Son are one. That's why Jesus can say the Father and I are one. They are not only one in their relationship, but they're also one now in authority. But the Father is never subject to the Son. That's the only thing that Jesus isn't over. And we've also learned like the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God, the Almighty, those titles and descriptions are originally the Father's, but it's also shared with the Son. That's no different here. I am the first and the last, you know, you know, we look at Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, capital all caps. And I told you that's speaking of the Father. The Father is the King of Israel. Did you get that? But I thought Jesus was King of Israel. The King of Israel and His Redeemer. Who's the Redeemer? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the original King of Israel? It's the Father. It's right here. Who is the Alpha and the Omega originally? The Father. 
was shared with the Son. And I am the first and the last. Jesus is speaking here. Well, that's His Father's title that He is also sharing. So now Jesus is also the King of Israel. But who is the original King of Israel? The King of Kings of Israel. You can even say it's the Father. So here's the interpretation. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, it is not another fancy way to say I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is declaring that like His Father, He is the King and Redeemer of Israel spoken of in the Old Testament. And I'll say this, because this was verbatim, this actually was word for word in the Old Testament, this was the easiest part of the vision. And I do want to mention this, and I'm realizing this, especially as we're kind of going through our study. And Jeremy, you sent me that quote, uh, was that A.W. Pink? Something along the lines that the Word of God is something that needs to be plowed, just like if you were to look for precious minerals in the earth, you have to break the earth and get in there to get to whatever that precious mineral is. It's no different with Scripture. And I'm finding that over and over. That the Bible as a whole, and especially in the book of Revelation, you can't just read it, find a graph that kind of fits it, and say, that's my theology. That's my view on eschatology. Especially the book of Revelation. You need to plow it, just like we're doing right now. What am I doing? I'm taking the descriptions of Scripture, and I'm looking for that same description in other parts of Scripture to help me find that treasure or that message that's being communicated in what we're studying. The Word of God needs to be plowed. It needs to be pondered. It needs to be meditated on. It needs to be reflected upon to glean and understand its fullness. Can't be lazy is what I'm finding. It's just like working out. You know, if, if you want the benefit of working out, you got to go through the pain, the discipline. And it's no different when it comes to serious Bible study that's why oftentimes it's hard. Sometimes the Bible is easy to understand, especially when they kind of serve it to you on a silver platter, like I am the first and the last. Uh, but most of the times, many of the times, it's not that easy. But with that, are you ready to look at verse 18? We're only going to look at the first half. Jesus goes on to say, And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So we're going to look at just when Jesus says, The living one. You know, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. It's self-explanatory. There's really nothing to talk more there. And then we're going to save the second half of verse 18 for our next study. Thankfully, the living one's pretty straightforward. If you were to kind of just do a, a search, only once was living one used, and it was used in the New Testament, and it was used specifically to describe, you know, when the angel described Jesus and the angel was at the empty tomb when they had visitors. I want to pick it up in verse uh, Luke 24, verses 1 through 6. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices. These are the women, which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, and as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, here's what he said to the women, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And I call this a technical truth. Sometimes you want to be technical. What is behind this phrase, the living one? It is a direct reference to Jesus walking out of the tomb after being raised from the dead. He is the living one that Jesus who walked out. So here's a summary of verses 17 and the first part of 18. So after John sees the glorified Son of Man from head to toe to hand to mouth, John fell at his feet like a dead man. But Jesus comforted John. And in that comforting, John, he says, he is the King and Redeemer of Israel. He goes, don't be afraid. You can also say that the one that he sees in his vision is the King and Redeemer of Israel. Jesus proclaimed in this part of the vision that it was he who was crucified and walked out of the tomb. Jesus proclaimed that because he is sinless, 
pure, holy, righteous, and the blessed one and the only begotten Son of his Father, he is alive forevermore. And this glorified Son of Man, whose attire, and you can even say posture, is that of God's great high priest and judge, he does even have more to say. And what Jesus says next, he says, he has, he possesses the keys of death in Hades. Now, I want to say this, because I've already been plowing that study. It was pretty sobering. It is also enlightening. Death in Hades, hell in the eternal fire, or the lake of fire. I know we probably have some general ideas, but we're going to look, we're going to do a little bit of a kind of a topical study. We're going to look at Hades a little more closely and even death. And we're going to see what's behind this phrase when Jesus says that I ha- he has and he possesses the keys of death in Hades. I do want to encourage us not to miss that one because a lot of people are there. This place called Hades. Right now, they're there. Hades is receiving many more people who are dying even now if they don't have faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. They're waking up in this place of Hades And the one who has authority, the keys over that place, is this glorified Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is, for those of us who place our faith and trust in Christ, we're not going to be there. We're going to be somewhere else. Paradise. Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. As we carefully dig through and unpack each verse of Revelation, it truly reveals more and more about Christ, the Father, and even the unseen heavenly realms. As Pastor Alex said, sometimes studying the Bible is pretty hard work, but it's good work, and in doing so, we are richly blessed with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding of the truth. If you've missed any part of our study, you can find them on our website, truthmatterschurch.org, or simply by subscribing to us on your favorite podcasting platform. And be sure to check out our ad-free 24-hour stream of Bible teaching, devotionals, and more. Visit truthmattersradio.com to listen anytime. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.